Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I am your host today. Are you getting stuck in power struggles with your child? Does it feel like your child is ruling your household? You're listening to the right podcast on effective tools for getting out of power struggles, reducing conflict, and reversing cycles of stress at home. Our guest today is Dr. Marlena Rose Selva, who is a therapist in private practice and has trained parents with Help One Child for the past few years. Dr. Selva, we are so glad that you are here today. Thank you for being with us. Our first question for you. Children who join a family through foster care, adoption, or kinship placements have experienced trauma. So can you tell us more about trauma and trauma's effect on our children, Dr. Selva? Good afternoon, Christine. Yes, I'm excited to do this and answer these questions. So in terms of trauma, it's an emotional response to an intense event that threatens or causes harm. It could be harm that could be physical or emotional. It doesn't have to be real. It could be imagined. It could be perceived. And it can be the result of a single event or from exposure to multiple events over time. Some examples are abuse, neglect, abandonment, uh, being bullied. It could be a natural disaster, witnessing harm to a loved one or a pet. It could be moving around several times, effects of poverty, homelessness. It could be being in the system, child welfare system. It could be a variable things. Just the main feature is that it, it triggers an emotional response to an event that's intense and threatens or causes harm, physical, emotional, um, or real or perceived. Okay. And... What are trauma triggers? Like when we think about our children, what might give us some clues about what's at play if it is a trauma trigger and how can we support our children if they are being triggered by past trauma? Thank you for asking that. With trauma triggers, it can be really helpful for parents to understand about trauma triggers. And there's a great definition by Child Information Gateway. It's a great website tool if you're able to research on the internet and look it up. It has a nice definition, very clear. It states that a trigger is an aspect of a traumatic event that occurs in a completely different situation, but reminds the child of the original traumatic event. So what that means is that something in the child's environment, it could be a person, a place, a thing, some situation that reminds the child of some aspect of that past traumatic event. And the brain cannot tell time linearly. It goes right back to that event or situation at that moment in time. So the child experiences the same emotions as if it were happening in the present time. So the child's brain cannot delineate the difference between the past memory and the current situation or event that's happened. And so it could be a trauma trigger could be a noise, a smell, um, some kind of action, and it's very automatic reflexive response. So it's not that the child's planning this or intending to do this. That's really important to know that way the parent 
even though it may feel extremely personal when a, a child is reacting, especially in a heightened, emotionally intense manner. And so it's very understandable. I can really empathize with parents how hard it is when dealing with the child is tr triggered. And so with that trigger, that emotional response to that event that reminds them of a previous trauma, um, the child's brain becomes overwhelmed, their body becomes overwhelmed in relationship to that previous traumatic memory. And so the child may appear to have a tantrum, not be listening, they might be defiant. Um, those are some examples of the behavioral responses. And so it, for the parent, look for those cues of emotional intensity manifested in their behaviors and look in their eyes. Sometimes their eyes, the pupils might dilate. They, they look intense. They don't look calm. So one of the key features in addition to looking at their eyes is noticing if the behavioral, if the behavior response seems out of proportion to the actual trigger that event that just happened in that moment, if it's like, whoa, wait a minute, this doesn't seem quite rational. I want to validate my child's feelings, how they're feeling. However, the behavior is way, seems way out of proportion or just not rational in response to what it is that triggered them. So that's a big cue for you too. And it's important at that time not to try to have a logical conversation with them to talk them out of it because they or demand answers from them to them for them to explain it. It's more at that moment, it's more important to focus on helping them feel calm, helping them feel safe and then feel secure. So the child can use their adaptive coping skills to regulate their emotions. In other words, to calm down that emotional intensity. So the goal is for the parent to identify that the child is triggered and therefore how to help them calm down, helping that child use their skills to self-soothe and we could talk about that too in this podcast about creating a toolkit for the child to help them know how to self-soothe but depending on the age of the child um, their emotional maturity it may differ on what that looks like in terms of how much the parent needs to cue the child and directly help them know what those coping skills are or just say hey Let's remember, use your tools. So it depends on the child's age and their maturity level too and on knowing how to do that. Okay. And how important is it that we as the parent recognize it as a trauma trigger? Would our response be similar if it was just whatever was causing that kind of a reaction in the child? Or do you think um, that we really need to hone our skills on recognizing it as a trauma trigger to better respond? That's a good question. So how to discern, I wouldn't worry too much on getting it right, so to speak, in terms of the why, what's causing it. Because the good thing is, is that the formula works regardless of whether um, that child is having a trauma response, a stress response in relation to an aspect of a previous trauma that the current situation is reminding them of. Whether that's the case or the child is simply just having a hard day or something just triggered them to make them upset and they're having a hard time regulating emotions because many of these kids do have trouble regulating their emotions when there's um, attachment issues happening. And so for the parent, regardless of, of whether it's one or the other, the formula looks the same in terms of just having the empathy, knowing how to emotionally attune to the child, how to recognize my child's having a hard time right now. They are having a hard time. 
identifying and expressing themselves. And when the child is having a hard time identifying and expressing themselves, it's important to help them calm down first before going through a lecture and telling them to use their words, for example, or just saying calm down. It's important to say, I hear you. You seem upset. Do you want to talk about it? Or we don't have to. Let's have you calm down first and use your tools, regardless of the specific script, because it depends on the child too. So remember, these are general guidelines. It's just important to remember to approach the child with the emotional attunement, to attune to what that child needs right then. So in other words, they may need a hug right then. They might need to be left alone. They might need to be rubbed up and down gently, up and down their spine. They might need to do grounding exercises, bring them back into the present moment so they don't, their brain is out of the past and back into the present and they know wait a minute, I'm not in the past anymore. I'm not unsafe anymore. There's no threat anymore. Because remember, it could be, remember, a perceived threat. The thing with the stress response is the amygdala gets triggered, that emotion center that leads them to believe there's some harm, some threat to their safety that they need to um, protect themselves from. And so it's important that that child feels safe and protected. That's the important thing that the parent can provide them. And the parent is in the best position to do that. And that's for the parent to identify what their child needs at that time that their child is upset and needs to be helped to calm down is the most important piece, not the focus on the tantrum itself and the child's being irrational or that the child is throwing things. As long as there's no harm being done or threat of harm to the child, to themselves or to anybody else, obviously safety is number one. So then you would need to stop them. But if that's not the case, help them breathe and, and feel safe. Thank you. That's very helpful. And I know you talked and you're great at thinking of proactive approaches to teach our children for calming down. What suggestions do you have for that and for helping create a toolbox for our children to access and use those tools to calm down? Okay, thank you for asking this. So in terms of a proactive approach to helping a child calm down, so there's two sections to this. One is to be proactive in terms of to be done when the child is not already in a heightened state of stress. Remember, you don't want to expect them to think clearly, rationally, and answer your questions and come up with solutions when they're in that heightened state of stress, when their cortisol is increased. And therefore, when they're in a calm state, not triggered, that's the time when you can work with your child to come up with ways of calming down. For example, create a kit for your child, customizing it to what works for your child. If they're younger, you can really get more and take a more direct approach with them in terms of uh, do your observation as a parent, look at what activities or toys seem to soothe them, whether, or maybe a blanket, it could be a toy, stuffed animal, a blanket, a song, um, anything like that. And give them strategies and confidence to be able to self-soothe because ultimately the end goal is to help the child learn to soothe themselves. In other words, to manage their stress and anxiety on their own. Because as babies, these children may not have accomplished that. The 
between zero to two, being able to accomplish trust as trust as opposed to mistrust. So if they're in the mistrust, they haven't necessarily learned that first I can rely on my caregiver to meet all my needs. And then therefore I can handle times of not feeling good, feeling upset because I know eventually it will be okay. And then that child learns okay, I can tolerate some distress and know it'll be okay. So eventually the child transitions from depending on a caregiver to soothe them to soothing themselves. So depending on their mental age, their maturity and how, where they are in their timeline of being able to develop that trust. If they don't have trust yet, you have to have trust first, be able to depend on caregivers, adults, to meet your basic biological needs first before you can move on to self-soothing, taking care of your own needs. And so first, you may need to really be stepping in very active, directive stance to help them identify ways to calm down. But after that, you can pull back and help them more and more create that toolbox, contribute to it, have them identify things that help them. And it can, like I said, it can even be a song that they enjoy singing. It could be counting. It could be ABCs. It it could be imagining themselves in a calm, safe place on the beach, anything like that. You can use imagery, guided imagery, visualization as well. And there's also another thing you can do is identify in terms of identifying specific activities. You can find a location like designating a location in the home that feels safe and calming. It could be sitting at a step. It could be at the table in the kitchen, under the table. It could be um, on their bed, in their bedroom, anywhere that's safe and they feel safe. And that way you can help cue them when you see they're triggered. You look in their eyes, you see their behavior. Something's indicating that they're in a heightened arousal state of emotion, then you know, okay, I can cue them. Okay. It seems like you're, you're upset right now. Do you think it would be helpful if you go to your calm place? And then if they need help, oh, what, what was that again? Oh, rem- last we talked, you said it was over there. And so y- you want to help them remember because this is proactive. So once they're in the actual stress response state, this way, you've already done the work. You've created a toolbox. You've identified activities or safe place for them to calm down, deep breathe, ground themselves, be back in the here and now. You've done all that. So this way, you can cue them when they're actually in that stress response state and provide the sensory input, help them calm down by like I said, rubbing their back, singing the song, those things. So those things are going to work because you already proactively identified collaboratively with the child what works. And that way, when they're actually in the stress response state, you can help cue them to use those tools. And what if, um, I know some of our families have children that are avoidant of talking about the hard stuff, like going back and kind of discussing when they're not in the heat of the moment, I know is really effective. What if you have a child that avoids that kind of conversation or is defiant about not following the plan or not participating in forming a plan? Excellent. So then it comes back to meeting the child where they're at in that level of trust versus mistrust. So if you could see they're not letting you in. So they're not fully feeling that they can trust and rely on and depend on their caregiver. And so for the parent, it's going back to those basics of just 
meeting them where they're at, even accepting small amount of a response, even if it's, no, I don't feel like that right now saying, I understand we, you know, I look forward to, you know, coming back to this and saying, okay, maybe we'll try in an hour, maybe tomorrow we'll try. So showing them that you heard them validating that their feelings, because part of rapport, you have to go back to the rapport building because that's telling you, okay, I have to show, even though you may have that rapport in terms of you've done all the work and, and built a pretty solid relationship with them. However, again, the way the brain works and it doesn't work in that linear chronological time, as you know, so even if you've spent five years building a solid foundation, again, they might get triggered. They don't even know they're triggered sometimes and what's happening. And so it's just meeting them where they're at. So if they're back to being that three-year-old that was in a lot of pain at that time, meet them there, meeting them exactly where they're at meeting those needs. So back to that attunement to what your child needs, being able to identify them as a parent and how to respond to them. Okay, great. And then what if you have a child who in that kind of tantruming or trauma trigger, stress behavior is acting out violently, verbally, abusively toward siblings or parents in the household? How would you recommend handling that? Because that makes it a little trickier. I think, to attune. Right. You're absolutely correct. So safety is number one, as I had mentioned earlier. And so you want to make sure you're not in harm's way. The child acting out is not in harm's way. And the siblings or any other person in that household is not in harm's way or even an object. Right. And so we want to make sure we remove anything that any objects, any kind of safety hazard. And and if you know your child prone to that, you may even want to set up your household as much as you can in a way that certain objects aren't within immediate grasp. And so next thing is it's still important to set firm boundaries and have fair rules and set limits and expectations. So letting them know, again, you do the attachment piece. Like I understand it. it, You seem upset right now. You seem angry because again, they might not be able to identify if they can identify like, Oh, what are you feeling right now? Great. But don't expect it. That's like a bonus. If they can, if they're in a heightened stress response. Right. So even if they're like, what do you know what I'm feeling? You don't know what I'm feeling. Let it go. Don't take it personal. Even though they're coming at you, like it's a personal attack, try to let it go and manage your own emotions. Right. Uh, this comes down to a parent remembering, okay, I got to make sure to ensure safety. But at the same time, there's this attachment piece. So first let them know, I love you. I'm here for you. I see you're upset right now. I am happy to talk to you when you calm down. It is not appropriate to lash out at me, call names, hit your siblings, use violence. That is not appropriate. Because remember, as a parent, you're, you're teaching and you're modeling for them. So remember to teach that's discipline. It doesn't mean to punish discipline means to teach. So you're teaching them, you're reminding them what appropriate behavior is. You're a great, great teacher for that. You get to teach them what's appropriate. And even if you think they quote unquote should know, be careful of the shoulds. Again, you're meeting them where they're at right then in that moment. So they might be mentally in that moment, they might, their brain might be taking them back to being a much younger age than they chronologically really are. And so, and if they're in a heightened state of emotion, that may not be the time to say, okay, what's the rule? If they're more calm, you can ask them. Otherwise, just directly let them know, 
Remember, you still have the authority as a parent. Being empathetic and emotionally attuned to your child doesn't mean you lose your authority. No, having your authority actually shows them they're in a safe place because you got this. You can handle this. If you look out of sorts and you're getting triggered, that's going to fuel their sense of insecurity because they need to see you have it together. Yes, you can make mistakes. Absolutely. That shows you're human to them. Emotionally, if your behavior looks like, okay, we can get through this. We understand these are some hard times. I get upset too. You're upset in this house though. We know how to make each other feel safe though. So violence is not appropriate, nor is it tolerated. And so there are consequences to that. So then later, once you um, calm them down, remove any uh, safety hazards, such as needing to get other kids out of the room, things like that. You want to make sure, even if you need to get yourself out of the room, but if that kid hurts themselves, then obviously you need to physically step in to keep them from hurting themselves and remove anything if they're using to hurt themselves with. Um, But it is important to remind them they're a part of this family and you love them. And as a member of this family, we respect each other. So that's going to reinforce their notion that, oh, I am loved and part of this family, no matter how, much I misbehave because the focus you don't want to, you want it on the conduct in terms of limit setting, having expectations and fair rules and teaching appropriate behavior. But you want to first have that attachment piece. They're reminding them you love them no matter what. And you can see they're upset and you're there for them no matter what. They may need to take a time out to calm down and you'll love them just as much and be there for them just as much when they calm down. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. And you've talked a bit about it. Anything you want to add to this question of how can we support our children who are already in a stress response when we didn't proactively get ahead of it? And I know you've addressed some of that. Is there anything you'd like to add to like when it's when we're in it when we're in the heat of the situation? I would say it tests the parent just as much as a child and know as a parent, You're doing everything you can and it's human to get triggered yourselves. It's human to cry, get angry, feel frustrated, question yourselves, whether you've done um, the right thing. That's so human. And so forgive yourself. Make sure you show the same love for yourself as you do your child because you can give and give and give and give to these kids. And in those moments, you may not feel like you're getting something back if they're especially if they're being disrespectful um sometimes cruel lashing out at you especially for moms they can be targets where the child projects a lot of their emotions onto them or or displaces those um upset feelings from the past onto you even if you had nothing to do with causing them and so it's important to know that to remain calm and keep that empathy going and know it's not a direct attack on you or a reflection of your quality of parenting. It is truly a child in pain and not knowing how to appropriately express it. So you have a vital role in helping them identifying their feelings and how to express them in an appropriate way. And so if they're being defiant, lashing out, just remember, you still have to remove the any threats to safety and make sure they are they know it's not okay in this household to be violent to anyone and even to themselves and just cue them to their calm place and, and ask 
if they're not hitting you, you know, you can ask for a hug. You can, or if they need a hug, those kind of things. It depends on your child. Again, these are general guidelines. So you may need to say, okay, I, I think it's time for you to go to your complex. I think it's time for you to sit at the kitchen table or, or go sit on the couch in your comfy spot or grab that book. They don't have to read, but just like holding it or that whatever it is that helps them. Or if they're younger, you can sing with them. What if it's a teenager? With a teenager, you're the great thing is they're more going to be more likely verbally expressive and able to identify their needs. So when they're in that heightened state, you're going to have already used the proactive approach previously. You've gotten their buy-in and they've given you more examples of specifically what works for them. And so you may need, you might say, okay, go in your room and play your guitar. You might say, okay, but you ask them, like, do you think it, be helpful at this time and if they're like no you may need to bring their guitar to them and if they're like no I don't want it you might need to use a playful style of parenting where you take the guitar and you start playing it and they're like oh my gosh that's terrible well I'm gonna keep playing uh, you know you don't want it I love this I think this guitar is awesome thanks and so you might start playing it and then they'll be like oh just give me that and then the next thing you know it they're grabbing it and they're playing it and so you need you may need to get really creative in how you direct their attention away from what's upsetting them and back in the present moment. Great. I love that example. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I know um, you've just started talking about this too. You're an advocate for using stressful situations as opportunities for bonding and healing and uh, building trust with our children. So how do you think we can best do this as foster and adoptive parents to bond and build trust with our kids through these kinds of situations the example i gave you or um, examples to the questions thank you for thoughtfully asking those questions they have something in common where i mentioned the using the attunement providing emotional security to build that secure attachment bond so that all gives an increased sense of safety and building rapport and to expand from that, the playful parenting where you might want to use comfort and joy experiences. So cut yourselves, make a, when they're crying, you might make a funny face. It, again, it depends on the child, right? You don't want to make a mockery or insult them and make them feel bad or And you definitely don't want to re-tap into their sense of shame. Because remember, a lot of these behaviors that are manifesting have underlying shame. There's a sense of shame underneath. They don't necessarily enjoy this they don't necessarily want to do these things and behave this way and cause chaos in the house it's their own automatic defense mechanism and protective like self-preservation mode they get into and and so the opportunity of showing them no matter what you still have a sense of humor you still love them you can laugh and play together that hasn't changed your amount of love for them hasn't changed make sure you're um when you give consequences and or rewards you definitely want to be careful not to make your love contingent upon them behaving well so you don't want to have them associate or equate love with them behaving well according to the household standards right they need to know because these kids will oftentimes depending on their level of developmental trauma or lack of trust they will test the waters and misbehave as a way to confirm their own bias like a self-fulfilling prophecy like see 
you don't really want me. See, it's not permanent. Nothing's permanent. People, they come and go. Um, I can't do, and then they start again, the sense of shame. I can't do anything right. And then they outwardly blame others, even though underneath they're blaming themselves and not liking themselves. And so it's so important to show them how much you care about them, regardless of that outward behavior. And I know sometimes as parents, it can feel like the child is being manipulative or acting, you know, we hear the phrase like, oh, acting out for attention, or all these kinds of things that imply the child may have control over the behaviors. And I think what you're sharing is really an important reminder to us that it may be this um, kind of ingrained behavior from their trauma develop or their developmental trauma that they don't have control over yet. And it may be giving us some insight into how they feel if they're lashing out at us. That may be a reflection of their own lashing inward or shame inward. Yes, thank you. Excellent for putting all of that together. Thank you so much. I love the way you put that. Yes, these kids, until they feel emotionally secure in their home, with their family, within themselves, you know, that'll carry over to until that happens, the lying, the manipulative styles of behavior, the lashing out will still be present. If that's the child's, you know, way of manifesting their insecurities. And so if that's the case, then it will go down the the lying, the manipulation, it could be even stealing. Those behaviors will decrease as the child starts to feel emotionally secure with you. And then that will help them feel secure with themselves. And for kids that have attachment disorders that inhibit that even further, that I could imagine the progress might be slower or the parent has to adjust some expectations around that. Correct. It could take years. Research shows it could literally take years. And I don't mean to sound negative by any means. It's hopeful knowing at least it can take years. Like at least we know we can make a difference and we do make a difference. And so just knowing to be patient with them, because imagine as much as your patience may be tested and oh, will it be tested? They also have to deal with the frustration with their difficulty with themselves changing. It's like they at times feel, because I work with these kids and, you know, they'll feel like at times they'll think to themselves, like, I can't get it right. I always mess up or, you know, I can't do anything right. It it starts to, it's part of their whole self-concept of who they are, they think, which isn't correct, but it's been ingrained, like you said, you know, these Things. So thought patterns happen where these kids just have these negative thoughts that just like the behaviors aren't rational, oftentimes the thoughts aren't rational. So we can challenge that by showing them, nope, sorry, too bad. I still love you. Sorry, you're wrong. I still love you. So you could say that thought was wrong, right? And rather than like, you might not want to say you're wrong. Depends again on the child's personality. Um, some kids that works with other kids need to hear, no, it's the, the thought specifically. You help challenge the specific thought that's wrong, inaccurate. Either way, you want to challenge the thinking patterns and the behaviors, but the feelings are always valid. So as you keep saying things like, I understand you don't want to go to school. You know, your kid, of course, you'd rather be doing a million other things than going to school. Now with the pandemic, that's a different situation. Kids 
a lot want to go back to school and see their friends. But um, aside from that, let's say when a kid doesn't want to go to school, you can validate that or understand if you're nervous. Let's say they have a presentation. They don't want to go to class and give that presentation. You can totally validate that. What's not valid is them not doing their homework, not doing their classwork, and not doing a presentation unless they work something out with their teacher. So you just always validate the emotion. So as a parent, understand the difference between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So that way, you know, validation doesn't mean giving in to your child or condoning inappropriate behavior or misconduct. Validation is saying, I hear you and I understand what you're feeling. I may not know exactly what you're going through, but I'd like to understand and learn more from you. Let them teach you and bring them in your world, in their world. I love that. Yes. Um, thank you. That's very helpful to think of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors as different and how we can validate feelings always. Um, so in doing all of this work, you acknowledged earlier that it can be exhausting or we can, you know, get stuck or be human as parents. Um, what self-care do you recommend for us as caregivers so that we can attune or even begin thinking about incorporating humor, laughter, and playfulness into our parenting like I know you're a huge advocate of? Thank you. So it can be helpful for parents to pick their battles as the old saying goes, where no, no, when it's necessary to take a situation seriously and know when something may need to be ignored. Even like if it's a tantrum, sometimes if the tantrum, if the child is tantruming to get access to something for you to give in, then obviously you want to ignore that. Right. And so it's important to know you're not letting them get away with anything by ignoring a behavior that might get reinforced through attention. You're not letting them get away with it. It's really important for a parent to understand that you're not spoiling your child when you're working on this building of attachment, this rapport. So have this, it's important to know you're, everyone's going to make mistakes, but is it really a mistake? I don't know about that. Sometimes I question that word mistake. Is it truly a mistake or is it an opportunity for growth and learning? Because if we look at things in the negative, as often we do when we hear the word mistake or or fault, a fault or a mistake, then we might think negative and, and then bring some sense of shame or insecurity in ourselves. So if we think of it like, wow, I learned more about myself and my child through that. And so you and your child can laugh together too about like, oh, remember the time when dot, 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 or even if you're in the middle of an argument, you might make a silly face just or use humor just to realize, is it this serious? Are we really fighting over this? Is this really happening right now? And and just kind of laugh at yourself to realize that there are times when it we look funny if you were to watch yourself get angry and yourself as a parent. And so even though I'm not undermining the the pain that the parent goes through as well, this is just um, to answer directly your question. So now when you're not in those stressful moments, just remember let go a bit of your schedules. I know we're all busy, but ask yourselves, like, do I really need to check my email right at this moment? Or can I 
quickly play a game with my child, tell jokes, ask my child. Some kids like telling jokes, doing magic. They like having attention on them, right? They, they like that. So they might want you to um, try to scare you with scary stories. They, they just, they want you as like their little guinea pig, their audience. So ask yourselves, like, do I really need to see what's on the news right now? Because remember, the news shows negativity and we put so much Ask yourselves, how much time am I putting into watching negativity that puts me more in fear and worry and doubt? How much more time am I putting into that and following the news that I could be using to maybe cooking a meal instead of grabbing something really quick to go, maybe cooking with my child, baking with my child, using that extra half an hour, coming up with recipes, things like that. What kind of creative, fun activity can you do with your child? Thank you. And um, this is kind of like the nougat of this podcast, I hope. But um, how can we, is it possible to get out of power struggles, to get out of like um, constant conflict, to shift and reduce reverse cycles of stress at home? What can you um, share as practical tips to help us, those parents listening that struggle (laughs) with power struggles, (laughs) conflict, and cycles of stress at home? So I'll provide some hope, right, as we conclude. And so, yes, it's absolutely possible to improve and reverse the cycle of stress. Absolutely. Knowing, first of all, though, no, don't expect perfection, even without attachment issues, even without developmental trauma, any history of abandonment, neglect, or abuse, even in utero exposure to stress, even without any of those human beings misbehave, right? We all do. Adults, kids, teenagers, we all do. So try, if you criticize yourself less and take yourself less seriously, that's actually going to help during moments of frustration to press pause, breathe slowly in your nose, through your nose, out your mouth, take those breaths, activate your own relaxation response and get your own self out of that fight, flight, or freeze mode and as a parent. And so that can help because think of it as an interaction. The outcome is an interaction between the parent and child that it's a cycle, a sequence of behaviors between a parent and a child. So the more you work on your own ability to stay calm in addition to the empathy and emotional attunement I talked about in addition and validating of their own feeling. When you're able to also calm yourselves down, um, we all are working on that, right? As humans, that's part of the human condition to have feelings, have emotions, have those primary ones, right? Anger, sadness, you know, being afraid, those kind of things. It's normal to want a crystal ball and to know exactly how something is going to turn out. So just have faith in yourselves and trust that you've done an amazing job and your child is trying to, it just may look different than the way you're doing things, but they are trying to. Great. And as we do conclude, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation to share out with our foster adoptive and kinship parents? Um, just thank you, Help One Child. Thank you, Christine. Thank you to the parents for our just wonderful, devoted community to these kids. Thank you to colleagues, professionals who also work with these kids. And thank you to the kids. I mean, you teach us about ourselves just as much as we try to guide and teach you. And so 
thank you for that because ultimately we're teaching each other love, unconditional love. That's what this is all coming down to is teaching unconditional love for each other and for ourselves. And so you're in a beautiful position uh, that you signed on for in terms of being a, a parent to this child. You may not have signed up for the <laughs> all the things we just talked about in, in, in terms of, you know, defiance and behaviors. How, however, you did sign up to give love because that's something you have the innate ability to give. So thank you for, for that. Thank you. Thank you. I love how you concluded. And thank you. This has been a really amazing conversation. I know that I've gotten some really helpful, practical ideas, reminders, and things to ground myself in as a parent. And I'm sure that those listening have as well. So thank you again, Dr. Selva. What, what a pleasure to have you with us today. And we look forward to an upcoming training with you later in 2021. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and it's great talking to you again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.